Welcome to the Possibility Podcast. I'm Mel Schwartz, your host, and hopefully your thought provocateur. I've been practicing psychotherapy and marriage counseling for over 25 years. And during that time, I've been so blessed to experience and witness countless breakthroughs of the people I work with as they actualize and summon new possibilities into their lives. I've written several books, including The Possibility Principle, which is the companion to this podcast. On every episode, I'll be introducing new ways of thinking, relating, and communicating to help you reach the possibilities that you may long for. Think of this as a new game plan for living. Please make sure to go to zoomwithmelschwartz.com and check out the new courses I'm offering on Zoom. The next one up, which is starting shortly, is called Cultivating Intimate and Resilient Relationships. Thank you for joining my community of possibility seekers, and please enjoy the show. Well, I am intrigued and curious and excited today to have as my guest Christian de la Herta. Christian is a well-known, renowned speaker at various different settings, which have included universities, conferences, trainings, spiritual communities, and of course, the ever-present TEDx stage. And Christian also practices as a spiritual coach, leadership development consultant, and he works from individuals and couples and private practice all the way to major corporations and not-for-profit groups. Christian, welcome to the podcast. We're going to be talking about you and your compelling book, Awakening the Soul of Power. Thanks for having me. And speaking of the proverbial TEDx stage, it's an honor to be here with a two-time TEDx speaker. Well, thank you. If I find the time, I'll go for three times, Christian. (laughs) (laughs) Awakening the Soul of Power. Profound title. I'm a believer in what I call shared meaning, which is that words have differing meanings to all of us. Could you speak to what you mean by soul and what you mean by the word power? Mm, Profound questions. Well, you know, the soul is, as anything in the sphere of spirituality is ultimately ineffable and hard to put into words. So when I think of soul, I think of like our own piece of sacred real estate. If we're going to go with the premise, like so many spiritual traditions teach that God or the sacred, however you want to call it, is omnipresent. It's everywhere. Well, that means, of course, that it's in each one of us too. So to me, that soul is that part of us that connects with the all, with the oneness, with everything. And so our, our own piece of individuated sacred real estate. For clarification for our listeners, um, some of them may not be familiar with the word individuated. I want to give you an opportunity to explain what you mean by individuated. Well, it's sort of like the sunbeam to the sun or the drop of water to the ocean. If the sacred or if God, to use that word that I know brings up stuff and can be conflictive for many of us. So if we can use the word the sacred instead, if it's everywhere, if it's all that is, then we each one of us is our own piece of individuated that, which is both individual and part of the all. That's what that means to me. 
Yeah, so, you know, our our belief systems are in, in accord here. I write about and speak about the challenge and the opportunity to embrace complexity, mm-hmm. and which would suggest that individual and oneness and wholeness are not separate. We need to retrain our thinking in a more comprehensive way to understand that we can have our claim to individual soul consciousness, mm-hmm. but that that is part, an inseparable part of the oneness and wholeness of reality. So we are both individual and an integral part of the whole mm-hmm. at the same time. That's what you're describing, isn't it? Yeah, you just said it much more eloquently. No, no, that's one thing that I love about your work is that you're applying the the principles of quantum physics, like inseparability, to, to the human experience. Which, of course, you know, it would apply because much to the surprise of some humans, we're part of the cosmos, we're part of nature, we're part of it all. So we're going to be ruled by the same principles that govern the stars. Uh, So, yes, absolutely. So can you now, with that explanation of what you're referring to by the word soul, let's go to the word power in the title of your book, Awakening Soul of Power. What do you mean by power? Empower connects to to one of the other words that you use you know one of the aspects of the principal core concepts of quantum physics which is potentiality power comes from that same root that that sense of potentiality and and the thing is that most of us i find mel have a conflicted ambivalent relationship to power because we've been conditioned to hold it in such a different in such a negative way uh so part of us wants it part of part of us is afraid of it and i think you know the more that i delve into this and, and work with people over you know decades that I've been working with people in in personal transformation, I think what we fear is that if we really stepped into our own power, our personal power, which is what this book is talking about, that other people couldn't handle it and that we might end up rejected and alone. I think we also fear that we might abuse it. And and no wonder, like all we got to do is turn on the news on any given day to witness at least one abuse of power. And we know what good hearted person wants to do that. Then add to that the conditioning that I was just talking about, you know, with, with quotes like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And who wants to be corrupted? But what they didn't tell us about that quote is that Lord Acton was speaking specifically about political power not the personal power that this book is about. And and so what happened when you add to that mix, the fact that we've been conditioned to fear the emotions, we hate conflict, we avoid confrontation. What happens is that we end up giving away our power, our innate, inherent power that nobody can give to us. Nobody can take away. We are the only ones who give it away, who sell out on our power. And the saddest part, the lame part is that we do so for just an illusion of security, for a false sense of acceptance and for crumbs, morsels of pseudo-love. And so what the book talks about is like, how do we reclaim our personal power? How do we step into that power in a way that doesn't require for us to abuse it, that doesn't have to do with force or or fear or domination or, or hierarchy, that doesn't require that we push anybody down, step on them in order for us to prop ourselves up and feel powerful. So how do we do that in a different way? Great place you brought us to, a thought that keeps appearing in my mindscape as you're talking is authenticity and authentic Mm self-worth. With what I call authentic self-worth, 
then I might not give away my power transactionally or operate from fear. So the power you're talking about, which typically we call self-empowerment, which becomes a, a trite term, that level of power in my thinking, Christian, but you share yours, please, is that to achieve that, I need to embrace my authentic self-worth, whereby I am not at risk or in fear of what I think someone else thinks of me. I am liberated from the constraints of conformity. I am able to follow the stirrings of my authentic self to be able to achieve the power you're speaking about. Yes, without a question. It, it, and doesn't it all come down to that? That's authentic self-worth, self-acceptance, self-love, like as far as I see it, and I'm sure that, I mean, it's what I'm hearing you say too, is that everything stems from there. And, and it begins with self-awareness because we can't get to that place of deep, profound self-acceptance without knowing who we are. And so that's to me, the process began with, begins with self-awareness, which leads to self-acceptance, which makes possible self-love. And I want to say it here, you know, say at this point is that, that I know this journey personally most. Like I know self-doubt deeply. I know self-hatred. My entire adolescence was one long depression with suicidal fantasies. And flash forward to today, like no matter what happens, no matter the details, the circumstances of my life, whether a relationship works out or it doesn't, a project succeeds or it fails, in quotes, never, ever, ever do I question my sense of, of self. Like that is established and it's healed and it's unshakable so that I know um, that if that can happen in me, that it can happen in anybody. Can you share with the listeners, Christian, that radical transition from depression, suicidal thoughts to the path you're on? Did you have one particular defining moment that altered your path? How did you come to this? You know, like like for most of it, is, it's a progression. But I can probably point, as you asked me that question, to two significant instances. Part of the reason that I struggled so much in my adolescence is, was, is that I knew at a very young age that I was gay and I was born into a very Catholic family. So trying to reconcile who I was and, and this part of me who wanted to wanted to be a priest, wanted to serve humanity, wanted to serve the sacred as I understood it then in a religion that told me that I was anathema and in, in the eyes of, of God, that I was an abomination, that I was going to burn in hell for eternity was incredibly painful and I'm grateful for that struggle because it forced upon me some very profound existential questions at a very young age. And I think that's what's triggered this process of self-discovery. Like I had to figure out of who am I and what am I doing here and, and what, what is my life all about, which is which are questions that we all struggle with. I think in my case and in many other people like me, we had to face those questions at a, at a young age. And there was the point where... Now, I actually wanted to be a priest, and I think legitimately I had this vocation, you know, this desire to, to make a difference and to serve the sacred as I, as I thought. So I had a meeting when I was in high school with the head of the, the Jesuit, the novitiate in South Florida, where I was living at the time, and who was thankfully a, a wise man who said, why don't you do a couple of years of college and then we'll talk. And in, in those intervening years, three things happened. I took a course in existentialism in, in college, which began a process of questioning or deepened that process of questioning. I had a phase of experimentation with mind-expanding substances, which also accelerated that process of questioning reality as I, as I knew. And I fell in love. 
And I'd had, you know, a lot of sexual activity as a teenager, but never, always it was in the, in the download, it was hidden. There was a sense of guilt. And then for the first time, when I had the experience of love and sex together, when I experienced making love, I knew from that moment, there wasn't a priest or a minister or a rabbi or, or an imam or a psychiatrist who could tell me that it was wrong. It was like, it was so beautiful that how could I be wrong? You know, with that combination of those three things, the Jesuits never stood a chance after that. <laughs> so you, you broke through the limitations of constructed values, mm. and morals and ethics to reach yep. your own inherent truth. Yeah, without a doubt. And it was and, it's hard work to do that. And is that process what you mean by heroism? Yes, that's one of the ways in which in which I refer to that. And it's it's one of the ways in which I talk about heroism in this book, which is the first of a series of three. The series is titled Calling All Heroes, um, because I think that's what the mans are are asking of us to become. And the pandemic has, you know, if, if we with as with everything else, if we look for the silver lining, if we look for the opportunities for learning and deepening ourselves, they're there. So, and I think one of the ways in which the pandemic has served us is forced us to look at that word heroism in a broader way. So, you know, before that, when we heard that word hero, most of us, you know, had images of superheroes with a cape or that three-point landing, or maybe you know, we might include warriors or first responders, people who place their lives at risk for the sake of somebody else or, or a cause. Um, you know, now because of the pandemic, now we include our healthcare practitioners, our doctors, our nurses, our respiratory therapists who literally put their lives at risk for the sake of the rest of us and still are doing so. And we might even include in there, you know, delivery people and grocery store clerks who also made huge sacrifices to keep the rest of us fed and provided for. And what about the rest of us? And, you know, in, in the world that we live, sometimes just waking up consciously is nothing less than heroic. And, and to be willing to dive in and to, to ask ourselves the hard questions, like the ones that we were just talking about, to be willing to face our inner demons or, or the shadow, as psychologists refer to it. Uh, they know that part of us, that that's the stuff that's hard to deal with and hard to, to accept in ourselves. It's incredibly difficult, it's challenging, and it's incredibly rewarding because that's where the possibility of freedom lies. It's, it's in that, and it's heroic and incredibly rewarding. Well, the path that you're describing elicits that the parts of ourselves that we would judge, mm -hmm. paradoxically, we need to do the opposite with. We need yeah. to embrace them with acceptance, if not love, so that it lessens or loosens or removes their grip on us. It keeps us out of our own wholeness. I notice that often in the midst of a therapy session, I might need to differentiate the difference between analyzing yourself, mm. which is judgmental, and it mm -hmm. severs wholeness and it impedes progress. But I'll say, but you do want to tune in. You can tune in gently, take a look have a corresponding dialogue with yourself. That's different than analyzing yourself and judging yourself, which yes. leaves you both victim and the judger of yourself at the same time. Yeah, very wise and, and powerful differentiation there. And yeah, you know, when we do look inside and face those inner demons, what we find is they've really been so overblown out of proportion. And some of so much of it, most of it I would say, is just based on misunderstandings from 
a young age where we didn't have the sense of self that we do now, the support system, the wisdom, the experience to see things from a different perspective is just stuff that somebody said to us um, when we were kids in a moment of reactivity, in a moment of overwhelm, and we took it personally. Or maybe our parents you know, separated when we were young and we made the mistake, like so many people do, of making it about ourselves. Like we personalized it. How could daddy leave me? Or how could mommy leave me? Leave me? Don't they love me? And then the deeper one is like, well, what does it mean about me if they didn't love me? And so those things that are so difficult to look at, especially from that, that young stage, that, those young minds, what happens is like, we can't deal with it. So we stuff it into the, into the dark recesses of the, of the shadow. But the thing is like, like we know from physics too, like energy cannot be destroyed. And, and we know that everything is energy. What used to be spiritual teaching is now quantum. We know from quantum physics, it's all energy. So all that stuff that we hide in, in the back of the drawer and the recesses of the closet, they don't go away. They just fester and they get bigger. And if we don't deal with it, they're going to start wreaking havoc in our lives and our relationships. Collectively, all of that phenomenon that you're talking about is what we would call shame. Mm. And, and yeah. of course what we're embarrassed about or ashamed of and we keep hidden is in and of itself the problem when we shine a light on the shame and even still go further and share it then the experience of shame evaporates because we're no longer hiding it yes So, so to reach to reach authentic self i'm an advocate of sharing my insecurities, my self-doubts, the things that ordinarily I would tuck away and hide, which is what constrains me, paradoxically, I need to do the opposite because when you do, you're not setting anyone else up as the judge of you. Exactly. And, and it's exactly what you're saying. When we, when we shine a light on it, it just dissipates. It, it was, it's illusion, the misunderstanding. And by being willing to face it heroically, because initially it's hard to do that, it, it's, we disempower the hold that it's had on us. So, Christian, how do you go about actually teaching this process to the people and the organizations that you work with? Well, I mean, I've been doing retreats and workshops for the last, you know, over 30 years. You know, like most of us, I had to pivot two years ago and start creating a virtual programming. So I've, I've now created a, a year-long transformational coaching program that dives deep into these issues, but in a very doable way with a support system of, of a group of like-minded others who go through this journey of a transformation together. So both the support and the accountability to keep us doing what we said we would do. And, and we focus on all the different themes that I dive into in my retreats, whether it's doing relationships consciously, removing obstacles to love, personal empowerment. I do work specifically with women and women's empowerment, life purpose, and all that kind of thing. And for, for your listeners, listeners, for your audience, the way that I've designed the book, it's is to make it very doable. It's like the chapters are short. So, you know, you might, you can get through a chapter in 10 minutes, maybe 20 at most and some of the longer ones. And there's no rush to get through the book. I walk the reader by the hand on this journey of personal transformation. What makes it different is that each chapter has I call them power practices, questions sometimes, and a, a simple assignment to help integrate the teachings because we don't need more information. We've got information overload. What we need is transformation. And that comes from really taking on the concepts, the teachings, and applying them to our lives. And so that's what those practices are designed to do. And as you're 
teaching this process, whether virtually or previously in person, what challenges and obstacles come up for you now as the teacher, but of course still in your own process? Are there moments, experiences where you find yourself both embracing uncertainty of not knowing, but in your own reflection with yourself, wondering, am I playing the role of teacher? Am I playing the role of the enlightened soul? In other words, is there a tempering of that where you have to come deeper into your own authenticity, saying, I'm not there yet. I'm guiding others, but I need to be continuing to guide myself at the same time. Without a doubt, without a doubt, Miles. Like I, I, I seldom use that word enlightenment because it, it means so many different things to many different people and, and it creates these separation. It creates expectations. And I, I don't think we're ever done with that process. You know, also when we when we talk about enlightenment, it, it's, it makes it sound like it's like one state of being that we we get through and then that's it. Whereas my my experience of it is it's it's a process and it's a never ending process, which is very humbling. And that's when I when I look at what teachers have credibility for me, that is the first thing and the most important thing that I look for is humility. I'm chuckling to myself silently. I, it recalls for me half a lifetime ago, being in Manhattan and hearing a speaker, a young man who referred to himself as both enlightened and a guru, which prompted me to chuckle and leave. My, <laughs> my belief is if you believe that you have reached enlightenment, one, there's nothing further to do or learn, which would indicate you have no reason to be in a physical body any longer. Exactly. Your, exactly. Your, your pure energy. And as well, it's a false claim of authority separating that person from those around them and in the audience. So, exactly. uh, you know, when you watch interviews, often when the person being interviewed is asked a question and they'll say, that's a great question. To me, that means they have a ready answer. I have said countless times, when I say that's a great question, it means the question has stymied me. I don't <laughs> know the answer. Yeah. I embrace confusion and love it because on the other side of confusion, I will become enlightened. I need to embrace not knowing. So that's what you're referring to. Yeah. And I'm a recovered perfectionist. You know, I had to be 4.0 in high school, 4.0 in, in college. And I mean, from my current understanding, I, I see now that perfectionism is just overcompensating for not feeling good enough. So we have to go out of our way to prove to ourselves and to the world that we are good enough, that we are worthy. And, and the, the tragic part of that is that it's insatiable. There's no amount of worldly success or accomplishment that is ever going to fill that part of us that says that I'm not enough. The only way through that is to heal it and to see that it's just a lie, that it's a misunderstanding. And so I'm very clear that, you know, I don't claim to be done. I've done a lot of work on myself and I walk my talk. For that, I, I do take credit. And I'm incredibly vigilant always vigilant about my ego and its and its blind spots and its projections and its assumptions and its judgy judgment nature and its defensiveness. I mean, always, always very mindful of that. I, I don't think we ever fully transcend that while we're in a body. Um, and I think, you know, from my experience, when, I, when I've noticed that spiritual teachers get in trouble is when they think they're done, when they think that they've completely healed or transcended their, their ego nature. 
again, I'm chuckling. I think about how we misconstrue what we call knowledge. This thought first occurred to me a long time ago. And when I read a title or work, which will say the eight chakras or the nine disciplines, without a disclaimer saying that we made that all up, words are absolutely essential for our well-being, our communication, and our learning. But to me, Christian, the error we make is in thinking the word is actually an entity or a thing. The philosopher Alfred North Whitehead had a term, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, which I think spoke to that, which is in my field, in psychotherapy, the DSM makes up a diagnostic criteria for diagnoses. It's a start making up a term, let's just use the term ADHD. Well, it's a description of behaviors that this team of psychiatrists are seeing a lot of. So they create a term to describe the behavior. That's okay as a description. But when we turn it into a thing and say you have ADHD, we've turned a construct of mind into an actual entity, a thing. and we mislead ourselves. They're just words. And so all of the things that I find burden us and trouble us, their perceptions coalescing around words. And then we come to think of it as things. So this brings me back to the question you raised before around the self-reflection. Am I good enough? Mm-hmm. Good term. What do we mean by it? And enough? Yeah. enough? For whom? For me? <laughs> For you, for whoever I'm setting up as the judge of me, I'm the judge of me, you're the judge of me. In other words, that that all distracts us from energy, which is where you started this conversation. Yet we need a balance because we are incarnate. We are humans operating this way. And it requires an attunement, a balance between understanding that we made it all up, but we do need to communicate. We just need to take it all and ourselves not so seriously. <laughs> exactly. And, and even, you know, going, using that example of the DSM-3, our understanding also evolves. Like it's not too long ago when I, when I started studying psychology or, or maybe around the time, forget exactly when, when that happened, but in the DSM-3, homosexuality was considered a no-less word. Now we know better. And now it's not in the dsm what is it up to now? DSM-5, DSM-6? Yes, right. And so at a younger age, I used to be fond of saying change is the only constant. Then I realized the error in the statement. The very word change suggests that the opposite also exists. Let's call that inert. But my new understanding is nothing in reality is inert. So if nothing is inert, the word mm. change is a misnomer because it implies a state of inertness. So I said, so now how do I phrase that? So now I'll say everything flows because change is limited, just like the term mind-body connection. Well, if mind and body is one, the word connection has no basis. Connection <laughs> it suggests a separation. We found a connection. Is that true? So I emphasize the importance of these words. You know, 
new age holistic thinkers speak mind body connection that's part of the problem no there's no mind body separation yeah that is so true that is so true so do you do you see in your work in your transcendent work within yourself and in assisting others are there places where you struggle around the words you use and the communication oh my god of course and just realizing that the moment that something comes out of our mouth or onto the page. It's, it's already in the past, which doesn't even exist. And that was part of when I struggled when I wrote my first book 20 something years ago. I struggled with that for a couple of reasons. A, I didn't want to be in the public eye. And it's like, I thought, well, when I put something on paper, that's good. Like, kind of like it congeals it into being. And, and I know my thinking is going to evolve and transform and, and change. It's like, then I'm going to have to explain what I said it's, you know, some 20 years ago. So um, I, I can provide you with a possible pathway to assist you with that. <laughs> I, you mentioned two TEDx talks. My second one was around what happens when we use the to be verbs. I'm sometimes asked, well, what has slowed this transition in our worldview and our paradigm to a subjective, participatory, potentially laden reality. Why are we still stuck in 17th century Newtonian, Cartesian thinking? And my answer is because in virtually every sentence we communicate, the thought we have, we're using a to-be verb. Is, am, were, was. Now, these verbs are all unique in that they show no movement. They're stuck. They're inert. They're fixed. And they speak of objective reality. Now, how can we make this transition into a flowing, potential-laden universe if mm -hmm. our thoughts are still glued with to-be verbs? Mm. So... I find that when I'm mindful, and most often I'm not, but when I'm communicating mindfully, I avoid the to-be verbs and mm. writing as well. Therefore, I don't have to do what you're speaking about. This is now written. It's in print. How do I change it? So <laughs> I, I, I'm a member in an organization called the International Society of Consciousness Studies, a group organization with whom I don't belong. These are deep scholars in academics, and I'm not. I'm a dilettante. <laughs> but I was invited in, so I joined. So we have communications and thread. Deepak Chopra is a member. Deepak comes on, and he makes a couple of proclamations like the universe is and reality is. And then he says, but this is just my opinion. And I said, Deepak, you wouldn't need to apologize if you eliminated the word is. If you said, for me, the universe appears, this is how I see things. When we speak subjectively, then we're free to change our perspective. And I think that speaks to what you were referring to earlier, which mm -hmm. is if I change my perception, that's fine. But if I make a statement of fact, then I'm stuck with it. And the, the two B verbs, removing them. That's very insightful, though. And it reminds me of, of your quote that, you know, of your words, in the nanosecond before you become your next thought, you exist in a pure state of potential. That's probably that only moment when it's still raw potential, which goes back to power. Speak to how that goes back to power. 
Well, going that connection between power and potential, the, the same root in Latin, from that same root, we get both the word power and potential. And it's interesting that in Spanish, for example, which is my first language, poder, you know, to be able to means both power and to be able to. And so that's what I mean by, by potential. It's kind of the same, the same. Yes. So it, it's grasping that nanosecond. And even mm-hmm. though it's a nanosecond, experiencing it subjectively as though it's an eternity mm-hmm. whereby you slow down your reactivity and your process Speaking again of the philosopher alfred north whitehead a very abstruse thinker i'm not sure that i understand him but it doesn't matter because he ignites my own process my own alchemy mm-hmm. and he had a word concrescence and that was the stirring of an entity before it's an entity meaning energy, before it becomes physical. So from that, I thought, what if I could find this feeling, this stirring of energy before my thought became a thought? That nanosecond would give me such insight into my process. And it's that stirring, seeing an energy underneath the form underneath the thought, underneath the feeling. And I've learned we can apprehend that if we simply set our quiet intention to do it. For me, that's where the hero and the mm. insight resides. That is beautiful. Beautifully said and, and profound stuff. I wouldn't um, say those are words that would come out of a dilettante. Well, <laughs> you know, I find you to be unique and singular in that your openness, your journey, your discovery, and your learning is is that you're not joining with me, telling me and telling the audience what you know. But instead, your, your authenticity is that you're fully immersed in the process and taking others along your process, which is one unique, and for me personally, really, really refreshing. And it humbles me because I fall prey to teaching too much and acting too often like I have the answer as opposed to letting the process simply unfold, which it sounds like you are very adept at doing. That's that's a beautiful perception of mirroring. I hadn't seen that in myself in that way, but to hear you say it, it, you know, it resonates. In other words, you're free of, or substantially free of unhealthy ego. Yeah, that, that I have to agree with. That. And I've done so much work in that area in, in understanding what the ego is and in seeing it in myself and in busting myself on it. And I'm very, very constantly like my witness is always there present, making sure that I'm not coming from a place of ego. And if I have a doubt, there are like a handful of people and two, three people that I know do their processes as raw and authentically as I do. And so I'll, I'll give them a call and say, hey, can I run this by you? I want to make sure that I'm not coming from a place of reactivity or, or being right yeah. or, or judginess or, or whatever. That's beautiful. And for the purpose of our listeners here, I just want to have a shared definition of what I mean perhaps you mean by the word ego. I think this is a particularly misunderstood word. Oh my God. Uh, When people speak of someone with a big ego, 
to me, they're speaking of someone with a minuscule, fragile ego who compensates for it by being loud, arrogant, and bombastic. A person with a sufficient and intact ego would never be arrogant or call attention to themselves. So culturally, we're using the word ego in the wrong way. Yes, so true. I hadn't quite seen it the way that you are, but I mean, I'd say the first part of what you said about the misunderstanding of ego as arrogance or inflated sense of self, but the way that you just took it to the next level is, is brilliant. And yeah, you're so right. There's so much misunderstanding about it. You know, so that's what most of us who know the word think. And then if we took Psych 101 in college, we might think of Freud's model of personality, the id, the ego, the superego. And, and that's not what, I mean, there are elements that for sure apply, but the way that, that I talk about the ego and and view myself through that filter is more derived from Eastern teachings. And it's the sense of self, you know, it's, it's, it's that part of ourselves, part of the psyche that kind of filters and synthesizes sensory information that would otherwise be completely overwhelming. It can reach into the past, it can project into the future. And somehow it weaves all of that into a coherent sense of self. Like there's this Christian over here, that is Mel over there. Ultimately, it's an illusion, both a helpful illusion. As far as we know, we're the only species that has a sense of self, which is what the word ego means, right? Ego in Latin means I. So that's what that is, that sense of individual personality. And it's also the source of all our suffering. Exactly. So isn't that the irony? We have a sense of self, and yet we truly don't. We struggle with the sense of self. Sense of self in relation to what? Mm -hmm. In relation to whom? If we have a sense of self in relation to the universal oneness, great. Mm. If we have a sense of self in terms of those we compete with and fear and mm-hmm. try to vanquish, then we lose any sense of self. I guess this is coming to me in the moment we're speaking, but one can't have a sense of self, authentic self, without having a sense of oneness. Mm. There. Thank you. You've helped me capture <laughs> what, in a way, to be able to articulate something I've been struggling with. But there it is. This dialogue with you is fascinating. And as we conclude this interview, for listeners who are interested in participating in your offerings, in your retreats, how do they contact you? How do they learn about your work and your book, Christian? Thank you so much for asking that question. I'll appreciate it. The book is available wherever books are sold, you know, whether you want to order it at your local bookstore or get it on Amazon. In terms of reaching me, probably the best way is my website, which is soulfulpower.com. And for any of your audience who'll go to my to soulfulpower.com and get on my email list, they'll get a sample chapter from the book. And it's the chapter that talks about what it means to live heroically. So tying it to our conversation earlier. They'll get some of the power practices that we were talking about. And they'll also get a 20-minute recorded teaching and guided meditation on trust, which I created last year to help us navigate you know, these times of fear and chaos and uncertainty. Like, how do we move deeper into trust? And thank you so much for asking that question. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been an incredibly stimulating and exciting conversation. Like, I feel my, my soul stirring and very much grateful for, for the connection and look forward to see what else we can do down the road. 
Well, it's been a delight having you and um, a learning opportunity for me as well. Thank you. hope you enjoyed this episode of the Possibility Podcast with me, Mel Schwartz. To learn more about this episode's topic and other similar subjects, please be sure to check out my book, The Possibility Principle. Your feedback is always welcome. You can comment on this or any episode of the Possibility Podcast by simply visiting melschwartz.com and clicking on the podcast link in the menu. You can also reach out via email to mel at melschwartz.com. The very best way to make sure you never miss an episode of the Possibility Podcast is to follow the show and subscribe for free in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll get new episodes as soon as they're released. And while you're at it, please take a moment to rate and review the Possibility Podcast an Apple podcast or the podcast app of your choice. Ratings and reviews help raise the visibility of the Possibility Podcast, and that makes it so much easier for new listeners to discover the show. So thank you for your honest review. Thank you for listening. And until next time, have a great day and keep summoning up all those new possibilities that await you.